Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. What Hatfield teaches us is that there were Americans who were willing to zealously fight against American independence. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Weiser talking about one of the most infamous Loyalist Raiders of the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press. Publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones. Available wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Eric Weiser, talking about Cornelius Hatfield, a name you may not be familiar with but one that carried a great deal of fame or infamy during the Revolutionary period. This is a really wonderful article because it shows the other side of the war. All too often we make this an us-versus-them proposition, and we don't often remember that the American Revolution was a civil war. And just as the Patriot side had their heroes and those who made sacrifices, the Loyalist side did too. But there's a fine line between freedom fighter and perhaps enemy of the state, if you would. Cornelius Hatfield walked that line. He was called a loyalist raider. uh, And at certain points, he was wanted by, quite frankly, everybody in and around New York and New Jersey. He proved to be a valuable asset for the the British cause during the war. Uh, And Eric's article illustrates that very well. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Eric Weiser. Eric Weiser, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Uh, I grew up on the northwest side of Chicago in a middle-class neighborhood. Uh, I mostly attended Catholic schools, and I studied at Loyola University of Chicago, where I majored in history and minored in secondary education. Um, I was a student teacher and a substitute I became a certified teacher in Illinois to teach social studies and eventually later business, uh, computers, and marketing. Um, I later on studied accounting at DePaul University, and I became a CPA in 2007. Um, Since then, I've worked as an auditor at a big four accounting firm, and since then, in corporate accounting roles with uh, large companies. Uh, Currently, I work for Underwriters Laboratories in Northbrook, Illinois. But through all these years, I've always had an interest in early American history, and I've been obsessed with family genealogy, and so that never went away. And um, as I enter this next phase of my life, I'd like to uh, be more of an active participant and contributor to the historiography of the American Revolution. What first drew your interest into this topic? Uh, Well, it was the first piece I wrote for the journal, and it was on the British supply ship Blue Mountain Valley. Um, which was captured by Lord Sterling and the citizens of Elizabethtown off Sandy Hook, 
Um, that was an opportunity to uh, study a more granular event in the revolution that's not necessarily, you know, at the forefront in, in the various books and studies. Um, in that in that piece, I studied each participant from Elizabethtown that participated in the raid to capture the supply ship. I came across the name of a man named Smith Hetfield, who was listed as a pilot um, in the raid. And um, from Smith Hetfield, I then started researching him, and I found him connected to Cornelius Hatfield. Um, and I discovered that he was, or that they were cousins, and uh, have a notorious legacy um, as Tory partisans in 19th century histories and secondary sources. Um, so I found it found them pretty fascinating and wanted to learn more about them. So um, from there, I started looking at primary sources, and I started finding Cornelius Hatfield uh, mentioned quite a bit in newspapers, letters, um, in all kinds of places. Uh, the topic itself I found very interesting because there was sort of an ugliness to it in that Cornelius Hatfield and his cousin John Smith Hatfield uh, were partisans who, you know, engaged in violent raids, um, you know, foraging expeditions, uh, things that, that kind of transcended the gentleman war aspect that we kind of see in the War of Independence. Um, and then as I found more about Cornelius Hatfield, who was the subject of, this, of the piece I wrote, I found out his, his disposition was violent. Um, he's a hard drinker, very boastful. And um, that seemed to make sense that he had a, a notorious legacy that, that seemed to last into the 19th century. Um, I also discovered a play that uh, was written for the 250th anniversary of Elizabethtown's founding. Um, the play was performed in 1914, and Cornelius Hatfield was the, one of the main villains in the uh, part of the play on the American Revolution. So, um, yeah, it's, it's the, the Tory loyalist aspect is something that I think gets often o overlooked, and it was a really great opportunity for me to learn more about it. Talk about Hatfield's early life. Okay, so Cornelius Hatfield was born in Elizabethtown, New Jersey, which was a town of just over a thousand people at the time of the revolution. Um, it's located on the coast of New Jersey, um, right across from Staten Island. Uh, the town was the first English speaking settlement in New Jersey. And Cornelius Hatfield was related to one of the founding uh, founders of the town itself. Um, his father was named Cornelius Hatfield Sr., who was a wealthy landowner and very respect, respected and active in the community. Um, he was also a freeman who had voted um, to choose the members of Town's Committee of Correspondence and was not necessarily an ardent Whig at the time of the Revolution, but he, he really wasn't a Tory either. Um, and Cornelius's mother was named Abigail, and uh, what the little that survives about her, she was known to be very compassionate and sympathetic to the poor. Um, Cornelius was born in uh, around 1755 and was the middle child with a brother and a couple sisters. Uh, he farmed his father's land, um, which was nearby uh, his own land. So he had, he had his own piece of land that he farmed, and he also contributed to uh, 
to his father's farm, who his father was pretty aged uh, when Cornelius came into maturity. So at the time of the revolution, Cornelius was around 20 years old when it started. And it appears that he wasn't married or had any children. What did it mean to be a loyalist in the New York, New Jersey region during the British occupation? Well, it, it depended on where you lived, uh, and it depended on how, how ardent you were, how, how zealous you were in being a loyalist. Um, if you lived within the Patriot lines, uh, if you were relatively quiet about it and not outspoken, uh, pretty much no one would bother you. But if you were outspoken um, or obnoxious, or what they would term obnoxious about it, uh, they could make your life hell. Um, and of course, if you cooperated with the British or traded with them, I mean, you could be imprisoned or have your property confiscated. And if you joined a loyalist regiment on Staten Island or New York, uh, that was truly crossing the Rubicon and, and your life would never be the same again. Um, if you were a loyalist within the British lines, I mean, you were safe. Um, problem is, is uh, if you if you left the Patriot lines came to the, into the British lines to live. Chances are your life was turned upside down. I mean, you brought whatever you could with you. Uh, your family was left behind. You had property left behind. Um, and it was a really harsh, harsh reality. What will be Hatfield's role during this time? And how was he captured? Sure. So his role, when he started his career uh, assisting the British as a, as a loyalist, um, he's mainly providing intelligence uh, to the loyalists on Staten Island. So he's, I mean, he's essentially a spy. So the, the, you know, the war starts, he's not active right away. Now everything changes, of course, when the British occupy Staten Island and New York becomes the nerve center of the operations, uh, you know, for suppressing the rebellion. But uh, Hatfield basically provided information to Loyalist General Cortland Skinner, who is the former Attorney General of New Jersey and uh, a leader of the Loyalist regiments on Staten Island. So he had worked out a, a, a signal system from the New Jersey shore, which Cortland Skinner said was from his father's house. So the Hatfield's land was within sight of Staten Island. So specifics of the signal system are, aren't known, but uh, they apparently had one. Um, and now his capture, he, he continued providing intelligence and, of course, eventually got himself captured. And what he was trying to do was load a boat with provisions to go over to the British. Um, this, this loading of the boat took place in present-day Manawan, New Jersey. Um, a letter had been intercepted by the Patriots uh, mentioning Hatfield, uh, you know, performing this act. And uh, Washington had... Hatfield arrested uh, what it was known. It's not, it's not clear the sequence of events, um, you know, whether he was caught first or, or whether, um, you know, the Patriots learned about it through the letter and then arrested him, you know, but either way, they, they kind of happened at the same time. Um, and after that, General William Maxwell, who was the Patriot commander at Elizabethtown, jailed him and the Elizabethtown provost. Hatfield's incarceration is important, so much so that it involves a lot of powerful people. Why is it so important, and how does he escape? Uh, so it's it's important because what what occurred was a real a struggle between the civilian and military authority, um, because Hatfield was considered still kind of a, a non-uniformed combatant 
and they there was a the New Jersey Supreme Court wanted to take jurisdiction in handling um, his his prosecution for what he was doing. Uh, the Patriots, or like uh, General William Maxwell, uh, <laughs> wanted to detain him. The big reason was that Maxwell was tasked with preventing intercourse or trade with the enemy. It was becoming a real problem, and that's why one of the reasons why you have such big names involved. But um, yeah, it became basically a thing of Hatfield's imprisonment by the military overstepping the civilian authorities. Um, the New Jersey Supreme Court issued a writ of habeas corpus that General Maxwell refused to honor on several occasions. Um, Abraham Clark, who was from Elizabethtown, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, who was just finishing up uh, his term as a Continental Congressman, wrote uh, John Jay, the Continental Congress president, about the matter, you know, advocating that this become a, a, a stay a civilian matter and, and that um, Hatfield should be turned over to the civilian authorities. And it's worth mentioning that Abraham Clark was married to a Hatfield. Um, and that's one of the interesting things about Elizabethtown is that uh, the families were totally interconnected. Uh, you know, there were Hatfields married to all, all you know, to Patriots. And it, it was a really interesting dynamic uh, to the town. But uh, so Washington decided that Hatfield should be turned over to the civilian authorities. Uh, William Livingston, the governor of New Jersey, agreed. And uh, it was all rendered, of course, irrelevant because Hatfield escaped. Now, Hatfield escaped. Unfortunately, his escape, unfortunately, has not survived exactly how it happened. Now, he may have had help from his cousins because his cousin, John Smith Hatfield, who I'd mentioned earlier, along with a cousin named James Hatfield had defected to the British earlier. So it's possible he may have had help from them, or he could have had help from a, a quiet Tory in Elizabethtown. Uh, we, we really don't know exactly how, how he escaped, but, uh, he ended up in Staten Island right away afterwards. Hatfield leads a series of raids after his escape. Could you describe some of them? Sure, sure. Well, yeah, I just want to start off by saying that, yeah, he was almost immediately after after he was um, or after he escaped from 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 captivity, went over to Staten Island. He was commissioned a captain of his own independent company of partisans. And that was in February 1779. The Hatfield incident of him getting captured, you know, with the ship the loading, the provisions for the enemy that happened in December of 78. So really right away, um, after he defects to Staten Island, he, he's commissioned a captain. Now his, his handler, uh, throughout the war, general Cortland Skinner had recommended him to be a captain of cavalry to Sir Henry Clinton. But, uh, for some, whatever reason, Clinton declined it and, and had him settle as a, as a, as a, you know, an infantry captain. Um, but yeah, he Hatfield, participated in a lot of raids uh, along the New Jersey coast and many against his hometown. And that's part of the infamy and, and bad legacy that surrounds him is it seemed like he was wreaking vengeance on his hometown. Now, some of his raids are large scale. Um, for example, the first raid he did was, was leading a thousand British regulars against Elizabethtown that re resulted in the destruction of some buildings and also 
there was an attempt to capture Governor William Livingston, who wasn't at home at the time. William Livingston was a transplant to Elizabethtown, and it's known today where his home is Liberty Hall. It's it's about a mile west of Elizabethtown. So the British actually made an attempt to to, uh, to capture him in that raid. Um, then he did a raid in January 1780 that was relatively large scale, where he led men over the iced over Arthur Kill from Staten Island to Elizabethtown. And that resulted in the capture of nearly the entire Elizabethtown garrison and the destruction of the Presbyterian church in that town. Um, so in Cortland Skinner gave him credit for planning and executing that raid. So um, he Hatfield would scout out all the positions of where, where rebel sentries and guards were, were stationed. He had contacts inside Elizabethtown. So he knew exactly what, what was going on. Um, now he led a lot of smaller raids uh, that, that would result in the capture of maybe a handful of rebels. So that seemed to be his forte was uh, launching in, you know, in the middle of the night, small raids um, with a small group of men, uh, you know, to surprise sentries and guards and then capture them. And uh, Hatfield claimed after the war that he captured or was involved in the capture of 300 um, rebel soldiers. And they were very valuable, of course, because they were bargaining chips for, for exchange of British um, officers and, and enlisted men. Um, some And one of his more famous smaller scale raids was in November, 1780. Um, he, he learned that uh, Captain Jonathan Dayton and Colonel Matthias Ogden, were both from Elizabethtown, were spending the evening in Connecticut Farms. And Hatfield with a few men went to Connecticut Farms and actually infiltrated the tavern they were st- staying and actually kidnapped them from their beds, um, which which was kind of lampooned or or made in jest in some of the loyalist newspapers. But uh, yeah, he he spent his career aside from large scale raids doing small scale raids, you know, harassing sentries. He knew he knew every inch of the coastline, and in the southern part of the coast or south of Elizabethtown Point. Um, is Halstead's Point, and there's Thompson's Creek next to Halstead's Point. Thompson's Creek leads to some smaller arteries into the interior, which are all salt marsh. So there was plenty of places for him to land and at night and infiltrate. I mean, he knew every inch of the area, and his farms were located not far from Thompson's Creek. So there, there was all kinds of places for him to land. But um, and he also did raids on water. Um, one of them was on the brig Arrogant, which he launched a raid on the East River, uh, capturing boats and capturing rebel soldiers. So this this guy was was all over the place. Um, but he also did, um, you know, intelli- a lot of intelligence gathering. Um, he did dispatch running. Um, so he was really, really valuable and very versatile. Um, and I'd like to, for the listeners of, of this podcast, if you want a flavor for some of these raids, especially the smaller scale one, raids, um, check out Joseph Plum Martin's uh, famous uh, memoir uh, of his time in the Continental Army, because in his chapter on the campaign of 1780, he, he talks all about 
um, the, the fighting around the small scale fighting around Elizabethtown. Uh, Joseph Plum Martin was stationed there uh, with the garrison there, and he had guarded all the different points. He actually called out the Hatfields as being notorious and troublesome, but uh, he he talks about all these large, you know, these ambushes and and what it was like at nighttime, what it was like to know that that the loyalists in Staten Island knew exactly where you were, and you had to guess where they were going to come from. Um, so it's it's really interesting. What is Hatfield's reputation like after these raids? Uh, well, his reputation with the British High Command was it was stellar. It was it was really good. I mean, after the war, when um, when Cornelius Hatfield was trying to get a pension um, from the Loyalist Claims Commission, he had a testimony from Cortland Skinner as to just how great of a soldier he was, how trusted he was. So for the British, I mean, he he was in the in the highest regard. I mean, you know, I think of him as a very violent, <laughs> you know, partisan and that sort of thing. But but they they speak of him in very high terms, um, with a lot of integrity, and very reliable. Now for the Patriots, of course, he he was completely loathed um, and feared. He he appears if you search the primary sources at the time, um, you know, letters by high ranking officers. He turns up all the Cornelius Hatfield turns up all the time in in spy reports, uh, you know, mentions of what is what is he doing, um, you know, talks about it, or uh, recollections about his raids. Um, so he had a very notorious reputation that would survive into the 19th century and into the war of Elizabethtown. After all of the violence and infamy, what happens to Hatfield? Well, it's interesting because after everything he he goes through in the war, watching these raids, you know, acting as a partisan, uh, he's you know avenge, avenge uh, a revenge lever for Skinner and the loyalists on Staten Island. Um, he gets accused of attempted petty robbery in Elizabethtown at the end of the war. Um, there was a senior citizen in Elizabethtown who was robbed at gunpoint, or at least attempted to, and. Cornelius was blamed for it, and Governor William Livingston demanded that Guy Car- Sir Guy Carleton, who was the British at that time the British Commander in Chief in New York, uh, arrest him, which Sir Guy, Sir Guy Carleton did. He had he had uh, Hatfield arrested and put in the New York Provost. Um, now it turned out that uh, Hatfield got lucky in that he wasn't tried in New Jersey because Livingston wanted. Uh, Hatfield to be tried in New Jersey. So by this time, uh, Hatfield had really earned a, a, a terrible reputation in Elizabethtown. Um, and I, I wanted to just backtrack real quick to one of the raids. Uh, one of the raids that Hatfield did resulted in the destruction of the Presbyterian church in the town, um, which history kind of 19th century authors attributed the burning of the church to him specifically, but there really is nothing in the record that shows he did it. So it's probably some loyalist troops that burned it down, but there's obvious sacrilege there. And and Cornelius's father was on the board of trustees for the church and the land was donated by uh, Hatfield's uh, great-great-grandfather, Matthias, who who helped establish the family in Elizabethtown. So um, 
Yeah, the, that, that's, that's, I just wanted to mention that piece as part of why they would have wanted, the people of Elizabethtown would have wanted him tried back in New Jersey. But anyway, Sir Guy Carlton um, refuses to have him tried in New Jersey and has him tried by court-martial um, in New York City, and he's acquitted by, uh, by the court-martial. Um, but after that, uh, Hatfield, and along with his cousins, uh, made their way to Canada. So the loyalist diaspora starts and all these loyalists are going to Canada. Now Hatfield's cousins ended up staying in Canada, but uh, Cornelius Hatfield goes to Britain and settles in London. So he goes to London and the first thing he does when he gets there is he obviously has to figure out where he's going to get money from. So he, he, applies for a pension from the loyalist claims commission and he's successful. He gets, you know, glowing testimonies from, from Skinner and, and other officers and a, a seal of approval from Sir Henry Clinton. And he's given a really generous military pension for life. Um, now his life in London, we don't know really what he did for a trade or what he, if he did something to augment his pension, but, uh, yeah, he he ends up living his life in London. Um, now he it's worth noting that he makes a couple trips to the United States um, to try to to try to get a hold of his father's the inheritance. I mean, his father owned a significant amount of land. His father passed away in 1795, but uh, these were very difficult trips for him. I mean, his infamy was so bad that um, he he was accused uh, of murder or of uh, Sorry, of attempted robbery um, back in the in the war years, uh, that which caused him caused his first trip to kind of be cut short. The second trip, he was uh, he was arrested and imprisoned in Newark uh, for the murder of a London trader named Stephen Ball. Now, a London trader, somebody was a term during the war of somebody that traded with the British, you know, like a colonial that traded with the British. There was an ugly incident during the war where the Hatfields and Cornelius was there, um, caught the man, this, the Stephen ball and, ha- and hung him. And it was in retaliation for the hanging of a partisan by the rebels. So he was, he was imprisoned on the second trip and he's acquitted because the treaty of Paris says that you can't prosecute a, uh, a British or American citizen for something that happened during the war. Um, so the, so his, his two trips are, are not very uh, successful, but he manages to still have a claim to the property, which he bestows upon his son and heir. Um, so he does meet a British woman named Joan Hinckley and he has a modest sized family. Um, and in British you know, in records in London records, uh, he appears as a renter in St. James's place. Um, and he lives, finishes out the rest of his life, um, in, in London. And, uh, he's, his wife dies before him and Hatfield dies in 1823 and is buried with his wife in London. And, uh, at that point, Cornelius Hatfield's son and heir, Sidney Hatfield goes to the United States and uh, manages to successfully get get title to the property. How does this story help us understand the Revolutionary Era better? 
Uh, you know, it's a very simple thing. I, I think it's what Hatfield teaches us is that America, there were Americans who were willing to zealously fight against American independence. And that that's uh, something, you know, it, we see it as kind of a, a the, the war of independence is, you know, the British is a for, almost as a foreign enemy. Uh, but we always, we always, miss out on the loyalist piece, you know, that there were Americans that wanted to fight to maintain the empire and, and keep the 13 colonies, um, in the imperial system. Uh, so that, that's one thing. And that the American revolution was also a civil war. And that's something I think later in life as I've come along, you know, read more and more studied more and more of it. I, I've seen it started to see it as a civil war, um, and oftentimes with, with ugly, ugly incidents and ugly consequences and the people were willing to lose everything to do that. I mean, the loyalists that, that went to Canada, you know, went over, went to Britain, other places, many of them lost everything they had. Um, some did better, some did worse, but there were people willing to lose everything or lay down their life. Uh, to prevent American independence. Eric Weiser, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long. <laughs>